Having car problems? Well, with Rhoda, getting them fixed is as easy as ordering takeout. They'll come pick up your car for free, do any repair or maintenance needed, and return it right to your driveway. They'll even give you a complimentary video inspection of your car so you can see what needs to be done. Perfect for those of us that maybe aren't so car savvy. Book your appointment online at roda.com. And lucky for you, CityCast listeners get a 20% discount on any service for up to $100 off. Just use the code CityCast20. on CityCast DC. DC Council is about to rewrite the city's ancient criminal code, and that's just one of the many big projects they're working on right now. To help us get the lay of the land, today I'm talking with Ward 6 Council Member and Head of the Judiciary Committee, Charles Allen. It's Wednesday, October 26, 2022. I'm Bridget Todd, and this is CityCast DC. Councilmember Allen, I want to start with an issue that I know is on the mind of a lot of D.C. residents, and that is crime. As the chair of the Judiciary Committee, what would you say to someone who feels like crime is out of control in the district and that nothing is being done? Yeah, no, I appreciate it. And thanks for having me. You know, when it comes to public safety, this is priority number one. There, there are no real issues that are a hotter issue and a higher priority, I think, across government. So that's both in the executive, the legislative branch, everywhere. We have seen, of course, across the entire country over the last couple of years, a really significant increase in particular in gun violence. It's deeply troubling. It's also not unique to the district. So we know that while the district has been experiencing this, Montgomery County has struggled with this, Prince George's County, the whole metro region and cities across the country. But our solutions are going to have to be found here. I think All too often, you'll see the politics of public safety get cast and framed as this either or that, you know, it either has to be this one solution or this other solution. I'm somebody who believes in the both and and that you've got to have a role for policing. So when harm is done, when emergency services are needed, you've got a police force that can respond and and be there for folks. But I also think if our entire conversation on public safety both begins and ends with policing, then we're not actually getting to the root causes of problems. And so that's what I mean by both and. You've got to be able to make sure that, of course, we can respond urgently and when people need help. And we've got to identify individuals at risk, communities and neighborhoods at risk, invest in communities that, frankly, have been divested from for a long time that experienced some of the most gun violence and trauma, and really try to identify how we and what strategies we use to meet people's needs, to help a young person who's at risk of either being the victim of or doing harm and be able to intervene and stop that from happening. Crime this year is down about 4% compared to last year, but nobody is satisfied with where we are. And so we still have a lot of urgent work ahead of us to get back to where we've got to be. Yeah, you mentioned, you know, really getting at some of the root causes of crime in the city. I'm curious, what are those causes and how do you do that? What's the best way to analyze all those various factors that do lead to crime in the city? Yeah, well, We know it's not easy, and we know we haven't done it for a very long time. So you think about a young person who is disconnected from their community, disconnected from school, disconnected from resources, is experiencing trauma and violence on a regular basis. To some degree, violence has been normalized in terms of either hearing gunshots in their community, 
having family or friends that have been lost to gun violence. That's an individual that we've got to go wrap ourselves around. We've got to figure out what are the needs that, do, that have to be met. How do we help get supportive services to that person? How do we help make sure that the path that could go towards greater harm and greater trauma, we find interventions? We have something in D.C. called our Pathways Program. And what it does is it identifies young people that have been involved in, in crime, people who have done harm, but also people who have been victims of harm. And it goes in and takes the whole person approach where we are treating mental health, behavioral health. We are providing a paycheck. We're getting people employed. After intensive weeks and weeks of work, that person then transitions into employment. That program has been so successful. And we're able to take about 20 to 25 guys at a time. And we're talking about folks that when they come into that room, there is conflict there. And you work your way through it. And at the end of that process, folks have jobs, folks have hope, and they also have conflict resolution skills. And that's a big driver of what we've seen across the city over the last couple of years is that conflicts that would normally just kind of end in an argument, someone decides to pull out a gun, someone pulls out a knife, and they escalate so quickly. I would much rather these things end in, you know, maybe a screaming match and then both people going their separate ways than somebody being dead and then somebody else being right. locked up. I mean, conflict happens, right? Like, pe people will have conflict. That's natural. But how do we have that conflict and how does that conflict end is part of what we have to address. I'll give you another example of one of the approaches we're trying to take. Oftentimes, when, when violence does happen, someone ends up in the hospital. They end up in the emergency room. And that's an opportune moment, actually to where you can identify what that person's needs are, the trauma they just experienced, and of course, treat them to get them better, but also figure out what was the conflict and how do we help intervene. So we are now investing in our hospital emergency rooms so that they are able to identify when someone comes in who is the victim of you know, a gunshot wound or a stabbing. Treat their needs, of course, but then also start building a trusted relationship about what this conflict is about to step into the middle of it and stop it. And then the other piece that we've got to do even more on is with our kids. These programs that we have for folks that are 20, 22 years old, that is vitally important. But we've got to be reaching kids when they are 10, 11, 12 years old to start setting these expectations and meeting what their needs are. So speaking of public safety, I have to ask, ANC Commissioner Denise Krepp called for you to give up the chairmanship because she said that you skipped a meeting about public safety, which you said that you actually were able to follow it virtually. What is your response to her call for you to step down? Oh, I, I really just try to work with serious people. So yeah, I mean, this is the same person that called for insurrectionist members of Congress to come oversee the district. Listen, I, I'm going to work with anybody out there who wants to seriously engage on public safety and, and work on those issues. So the meeting that they were referencing, they, they didn't even invite me to it. It's really hard to attend something you weren't invited to, but we were able to follow it online, already have worked with the chief to address what some of the neighbor's concerns were, specifically at that one intersection. So I have for years worked with our neighbors, worked with community leaders to really address the serious issues of the day. And, you know, I mentioned earlier, there's there's the politics of public safety. For some people, they're better served by the problem. I am much more interested in solutions. Mm, and I know that one of those solutions is a real overhaul to the city's criminal code. Why do you think that deep, big changes need to be made to DC's criminal code and how will they impact the city? Yeah, I appreciate you asking about this. This is a big deal. It is a mammoth rewrite of, uh, of DC's criminal code. And, and to back it up for everybody, our criminal code, so the laws that govern DC, were written in 1901 and enacted by Congress. It's over 120 years ago. 
There were only 45 states in the country, and a whole bunch of the people who actually wrote our criminal code are former slaveholders. So to say that it doesn't reflect district values or even D.C. residents would be a gross understatement. So it's 120 years overdue. We've spent now the last 16 years working through what's called our Criminal Code Reform Commission. And we now have a mammoth package in front of us that's a once-in-a-century opportunity to be able to to really make some significant change. You know, our, our code is a mess because over 120 years, it's just got overlapping and contradictory laws that some some places don't even make sense. Did you know that right now it's a crime for children to play in the street? It's kind of nuts. So we're going to be updating it. We're going to be clarifying it. We're going to be adding proportionality to the ways in which penalties are there so that when harm is done, there is accountability and there's clarity for the judges, for the juries, for the attorneys, for the victims and the defendants. And we're going to have it focus on fairness. It's a product of a lot of compromise, of a lot of collaboration, but it's going to make a big difference for our city. I know it might get kind of wonky, but how do you think this will impact the city? It's totally wonky, but <laughs> I'll, I'll try to break down a couple of examples. So in the 1990s, DC decided to move away from jury trials when you're facing incarceration. Now, most people would believe that being judged by a jury of your peers is kind of like a foundational legal principle. But we walked away from that in the 1990s. And DC is actually a huge outlier in this. There's only nine other states like us where you don't have a right to a jury. So you're facing up to six months of incarceration and you don't get a jury. That's a fairness issue. And because we, of course, want to make sure this is successful, we phase this in over a number of years so that it can be successful with the courts. But that's one area where we're going to see, I think, just a, a much more fundamental fairness issue that takes place. We'll also make sure that we clarify. We've got some laws on the books, for example, where because these things get overlapped by people legislating in the heat of the moment, where the threat of doing something actually carries a longer criminal penalty than actually doing the thing. And that's a product of people just legislating over the years without the context of the full criminal code and kind of legislating in the moment. And that's what creates a huge problem. It's also what helps lead to the fact that at D.C., we lead the country in mass incarceration. And so having a much more fair and proportionate system where you hold people accountable when harm is done, but you do it in a fair and just way will lead to a safer city. It will lead to improved public safety. It will improve to greater confidence in the courts as well. So I think it's a, it's again, it's most other states went through this process decades ago. We're, we're catching up, but we're going to end up with something that makes a lot more sense for everybody. Is there any concern about fallout around changing policies all at once? Like, how do you get that information out there to people? And how can police change their response quickly if these changes are enacted? So when the proposal came to the council, so the Reform Commission had done their years and years of work, they introduced the bill to the council. Their proposal was that it take effect next year. When I talked with all the different players in the system, so that's from the chief of police to the chief judge of the courts to the attorneys that would represent people, it's pretty clear there's no way you can adopt this type of change that fast. So working with a lot of stakeholders, my recommendation is actually that we spend the next three years working on all the things that have to happen, the retrainings for officers, the making sure the systems are set up in the courts, working to retrain the attorneys. Everyone has to go through a, a pretty substantial retraining. I think we're being responsible, though, in recognizing that we have a, a very big interest in making sure it works well. And so giving a three-year time frame really will help make sure that happens. 
So speaking of big changes being made in the city, you masterminded a bill that, if it was passed by the full council, would give residents up to $100 each month for Metro. Tell me about this bill. Like, how would it work and why do you think it's needed for the city? It's a big deal and it's absolutely needed. The economic recovery of D.C. and our region is intrinsically tied to WMATA's success. So this piece of legislation, this new initiative, will be great for helping WMATA stabilize and grow through its economic recovery. It's going to be great for our local businesses and for our general economy as well. But let me tell you who it's going to be so impactful for, and that's D.C. residents. We watched during the pandemic where bus ridership did not decline nearly as much as rail ridership. And why is that? Because rail ridership typically is moving people around the region and moving commuters in and out. Our bus ridership is how D.C. moves around. So going to the grocery stores, going to the doctor's office, going to school. And in particular, everyone that we call essential workers, those are folks that are dependent on the bus. So what this does is it recognizes that we have a significant opportunity to help people afford the cost that they face, and just to kind of do right by DC residents. So it's $100 a month on a smart trip card. It's tied to your card. So we have all kinds of built-in accountability and protection systems in there. But $100 a month will cover about 85 to 90% of people's monthly travel costs. It will also put in, the way this program is set up, it'll put in $10 million a year into improving bus transit in the city. So think about those routes where they don't have bus shelters or the bus runs too infrequently. It's $10 million a year to improve bus service in our underinvested areas. That's going to have a significant impact on equity to improve it. So I'm excited about it moving forward. Yeah, this is very exciting. I'm very excited to hear all of this. I know somebody out there listening is thinking, that sounds expensive. Like, What's your argument for people who think that's going to cost the city so much money? Sure. That's not the reason we don't do it. I mean, D.C. is an expensive place to live. So you've got families right now that are struggling to, to pay the rent. we got families that are struggling to put food on the table. Every week, it feels like costs are going up for somebody. So our city, though, overall is actually doing quite well. Our, every quarter, we get a, an estimate from our chief financial officer that tells us how the city's doing overall. Our economy, while we are facing a lot of uncertainty as across the globe we are, our local economy is strong. And so every quarter, they keep telling us how we have tens of millions, sometimes hundreds of millions more money coming into the district than we were planning for. Let's put that money back in people's pockets. Let's get that back to the people who make D.C., D.C. And so whether that's helping make sure you can pay for the way you get to work with Metro for D.C., or whether that's making sure that that working family that we like to call an essential worker when it feels good and pat ourselves on the back, can have the money they need to make sure that they are able to afford housing, afford food, make sure the kids are, are healthy. That Those are our values. That's what our city can do and should do. So I, I think when the city does well, we can all do well. And those things don't have to be in opposition to each other. Councilmember Allen, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks so much. I enjoyed the conversation and appreciate it. And before you head out, some quick news. D.C. leaders have asked Congress for an extension on presenting a local parole system plan. That means D.C. parole decisions will stay in the hands of federal authorities for at least two more years. Reform advocates are concerned that this could set back local control indefinitely if the Republicans take Congress in the upcoming midterm elections. Meanwhile, sports betting in the district might be getting a little more competitive soon. 
Councilmember Alyssa Silverman has introduced a bill that would open DC up to hosting multiple sports betting apps. Currently, the notoriously buggy Gambit DC app run by the DC Lottery is the only game in town. It'll be up for a new contract from the city in 2024. And lastly, Montgomery County prosecutors have dropped charges against high school football coach Travis Hawkins. They'd initially filed the misdemeanor assault complaint against the Northwest High School coach after he'd gotten involved in a brawl between players and coaches during a game. The incident spurred increased security at football games across the county. That's all for today here on CityCast DC. We're gearing up for a week of election coverage to help you make sure that you know everything that you need to vote. So send us your questions and share this podcast with your friends so they can be informed too. We'll be back tomorrow morning with even more news from around the city. Talk to you then. Currently, the notoriously buggy Gambit... Gambit. What a stupid name.